Hi there! Welcome to Explain This, a podcast where we try to explain complex things in simpler ways for people of all ages. I'm your host, Jen Kim, and today we'll talk about the exciting, revolutionary newcomer to the world of genetic engineering, CRISPR. No, not that plastic container that keeps your spinach leaves crisp in the fridge, but the molecular biology tool that lets scientists make precise edits to the genetic code. Let's get started. Whether you're interested in science and biology or not, you've probably heard about genetic engineering in one form or another. And not just in science fiction movies like Gattaca, but all around us, from super vegetables to glow-in-the-dark mice. Genetic engineering encompasses a big field of science that involves modifying the genome of a living thing. You can think of the genome, written in DNA, as a super complex instruction manual that cells use as the guideline for, well, literally everything. If you alter an organism's DNA, you can change how their body functions, or even what they look like. Humanity has been tinkering with the genetic makeup of other living things for tens of thousands of years, so it's not all new and scary stuff. People often forget that the oldest trick in the book of agriculture, artificial selection, is a form of genetic engineering. This is when you select crops or animals that have qualities that you want in the next generation, so you selectively only breed those ones, so that good qualities get passed down. For example, if you want bigger cows, every breeding season just take the biggest cows and mate those ones. Simple as that. Over a long period of time, you guide the evolution of the species down the path that you want. But this is a very crude form of genetic engineering, because it takes a long time and it can be hit or miss how the genes are passed down. So, ever since we discovered DNA back in 1953, there has been continuous research into how we can edit it more reliably and accurately, so that we can change important qualities of various animals and plants. And thanks to the tireless works of researchers around the world, we now have crops that are more resistant to weather changes and pests. We've created new drugs that can be pumped out by modified bacteria. And we have come to understand genetics in far more detail, such as figuring out that we can make fish glow in the dark by inserting a specific gene into them. However, gene modification technology is, understandably, very complicated, expensive, and can take a long time. This made genetic modification slow and expensive. That is, until the arrival of CRISPR. CRISPR is a super exciting discovery that has changed the game of genetic engineering and how we study genomes. And it's not an overstatement, it's one of the most groundbreaking discoveries of the century. It even won its discoverers the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2020. So before we delve deep into explaining what CRISPR is and how this new technology works, let's explain it to you as if you were a child. Your body is made up of trillions of teeny tiny little jelly factories called cells. These cells, most of them anyway, can't think or speak, but they are really good at following instructions. Inside the center of the cell, there is a super important library of instruction manuals called the genome. Every cell has a copy of the same genome, and they can read the instruction manual to know exactly what proteins to make, which determines the cell's jobs and what they do. So. Clever scientists have figured out that if you sneak in there and make some changes to the genome, you can trick the body into doing completely different things it didn't even know it could do. A new awesome tool that we have now that can do this is called CRISPR technology. CRISPR is a specialized tool that we borrowed from germs that does two things really well. 
First, it's really good at scanning the genome library for a specific page with the exact sequences of words that it's been told to look for. Second, if it finds an exact copy of what it's looking for, it'll neatly just cut that section out of the genome. Germs, or bacteria specifically, use this tool as a defense system against viruses so they can seek and destroy viruses that they've encountered before. But scientists realize that we can take this CRISPR system and modify it slightly. Then we can teach it to look for and cut out any sequence of genetic information in any cell that we want. The genome not only contains information for how the body should build itself and how it should function, but it also can contain errors that cause diseases. Really nasty ones too, like the ones that can make people's lungs turn into rock or make people lose control over their body. So, if we teach CRISPR to go cut out the bad genes causing these diseases, and slip in normal functioning genes to replace the blank space left behind, then we can treat people who thought they had incurable diseases. Before CRISPR, it was really hard to change DNA because it's so teeny tiny and we didn't have tools to easily read and change the errors. It'd be like going in a library, reading millions and billions of books yourself, and using a giant whiteboard marker to fix one typo. But now with CRISPR, we can release millions of robots into the library instead, to look for the exact typo and correct all of them, super accurately. It's a real game changer in biology because now we have this cheap, reliable tool to modify genomes in different animals and plants, to make healthier, more nutritious vegetables, make new kinds of medicines to treat people, and fix people's diseases by telling their body to be better than that. Welcome back. Alright, so CRISPR, or more specifically the CRISPR-Cas9 system, is essentially a highly effective, accurate, molecular spell checker that lets us find all instances of a specific typo in the genome and delete it. We'll talk more about how CRISPR-Cas9 works and how we can use it to modify genes, but let's take one step back and do a brief refresher on what a genome is. Our cells rely on a massive bank of instruction manuals called the genome to know exactly what proteins to make. This genome is printed on a fascinating double ribbon called DNA, or deoxyribonucleic acid. The system is shockingly simple. There are four building blocks of DNA, or base pairs, G, T, C, and A. Like magnets, G will always want to hold hands with C, and T always wants to bind with A. So if you look at a model of DNA, it looks like a twisted ladder where each rung is made of either G plus C or T plus A. If you want to read this instruction manual, you have to unzip it down the middle, separating the base pairs. This lets you make a carbon copy of the instruction because there's only one possible way to pair up base pairs. So if the original DNA has a sequence of GGG, then the copy has to read CCC. It's a really simple but elegant system. So the cell can unzip the DNA, read it, and make a corresponding copy to take to the protein factories. This copy is called RNA, which we talked about briefly when we explained mRNA vaccines back in episode 18. Now, here's the cool part. Your cells feed the RNA into a factory called a ribosome, and the ribosome will read the sequence as if it were a secret code, kind of like interpreting Morse code. Each set of three bases, like ATA, or GCA, or TAC, codes for a specific amino acid, which is the building block of proteins. This means that if you read a strip of RNA, it would translate into a string of amino acids. 
It'll be like telling the ribosome to poop out a string alternating between different colors so that you can make a specific color sequence. Because of the way amino acids work and interact, they will fold and twist in a very specific way to produce a protein which serves a specific purpose in the body. Long story short, DNA lets our bodies know exactly what kind of proteins to print out. This means that if we change the DNA, we can change the proteins the cell makes. It's like if you went through all of the Harry Potter books and changed the word wand to wang. It would completely change the story. This is the basis of genetic modification. But naturally, it's very hard to tweak tightly mound, tiny base pairs in the middle of a cell. It would be like trying to sculpt a beautiful statue with lots of fine details with a wrecking ball. And this is the backdrop that highlights why CRISPR-Cas9 is so damn revolutionary. I mean, it's only been called one of the most significant discoveries in the history of biology. Or in the words of one of the co-inventors, Jennifer Doudner, it was one of those OMG moments where you look at each other and say, holy moly. I love it when scientists talk casually. Okay, so now we can talk about how CRISPR-Cas9 works. CRISPR stands for, wait for it, Clustered, Regularly, Interspaced, Short, Palindromic Repeats. Yep, that's why I keep just saying CRISPR and will do so for the rest of the episode. Essentially, CRISPR is a very specific DNA sequence found in certain bacteria that seems to be repeated several times in a row, almost as if it's a bookmark of sorts. It also reads the same back to front, hence palindromic. In the last 20 years, scientists figured out that the DNA that lies between these CRISPR sequences, also called spacer DNA, are actually snippets of virus DNA. But not just any viruses, but bacteriophages. Yep, the exact ones we talked about in episode 18. Go listen to it after this if you don't remember how they work. Anyway, it seems that CRISPR is like a vaccine passport for bacteria where if it survives a bacteriophage attack, it keeps a copy of a piece of the viral DNA in its own genome, so that it remembers. There are other proteins called Cas, because they are CRISPR-associated proteins, that also work with the CRISPR system. Some Cas proteins, like Cas1, are responsible for taking these viral DNA samples and embedding them between CRISPR segments for future use. But another specific one called Cas9 can take a copy of the spacer DNA, much like we take a copy of RNA to a ribosome, and scan the rest of the bacteria to see if it can find the same DNA sequence anywhere else. This means that if the same kind of virus wants to infect the bacteria, Cas9 would recognize the DNA sequence and attack it. Specifically, it cuts out that sequence of DNA from the rest of the viral genome, which essentially destroys the virus. If this whole system sounds familiar, it's because it's very similar to how our immune system works to produce antibodies, which is why we call the CRISPR-Cas9 system the adaptive immunity for bacteria. Cas9 is really good at looking for the exact DNA sequence it's given, and snipping just that section out if it discovers it elsewhere. So back in 2012, biochemists Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier had the brilliant idea that we can hijack this system to edit DNA in other cells. What they did was to take the Cas9 protein and fed it a custom-made piece of RNA that was a chimera, or fusion, of the tracer RNA that it normally uses, plus a custom CRISPR RNA to look for. We call this chimera the guide RNA because it's being used to guide the Cas9 to a specific location in a genome. They found that Cas9 could take this custom guide RNA, read it, and then search a cell for all instances of the same sequence and then cut it out, exactly the way it does in bacteria. 
This was revolutionary because Cas9 doesn't need anything more than the guide RNA to seek out exactly the piece of DNA that we're looking for and snip it out to deactivate it. Cas9 does this by unwinding the DNA so that it can slide along the base pairs, comparing it to the RNA sequence that it is carrying. It's like taking a translucent photo of Wally or Waldo, depending on where you're from, then sliding it over a page of Where's Wally until the picture matches. When it does find an exact match, as in the sequence of base pairs perfectly correlating with the sequence it's carrying, then Cas9 makes two cuts, just before and just after that sequence, because remember, DNA is a ribbon strip. And this is why Cas9's been nicknamed as Molecular Scissors. It's super accurate and doesn't cut any more DNA out than it needs, reducing the risk of errors and harm. Now normally, when Cas9 snips out the section of DNA, the cell tries to repair the gap by stitching it back together, often with mutations. This would usually just deactivate the gene so that the protein it codes for is no longer made, but you have the chance of also creating an unintended mutant gene that could cause a disease. So the second step is to introduce a host DNA as well with Cas9. So when the cell tries to repair the gap, it goes, oh look, a perfect replacement gene. Why don't I just slot it right in there at the gap? And just like that, we not only have molecular scissors, but we have molecular spell checkers that can change a typo to the correct word. It also means that if we already know what the genome reads as, as in we know exactly where we want to insert a new gene, we can do that with CRISPR-Cas9. It turns out that this system isn't just super accurate, reliable, and easy to use, but it's also very cheap, because all you need is the Cas9 protein and a way to code your guide RNA. You don't need any extra fuel or building tiny machinery. We've already hijacked a biological machine. Compared to previous methods of gene editing, CRISPR-Cas9 is 99% cheaper and takes the time required to edit a gene from years to weeks. And that's why it's a revolution. Suddenly, scientists all around the world didn't need a massive, well-funded lab to study and modify genes. And you could do it so much faster, so genetic research has rapidly developed in the last 10 years. Within three years of CRISPR-Cas9 being debuted in the world, research teams were able to use it to remove all HIV DNA from cells in a lab, and then showed that they could remove up to half of the HIV in rat cells, showing promises of a potential cure for AIDS in the future. The impact of CRISPR technology on the world of biology can't be understated. It's completely altered how we view genetic engineering, because it's as if we went from using stone tools to laser machinery overnight. That was a lot of information, so let's take a short break. And when we're back, we'll talk about the applications of CRISPR technology and what it means for the future of humanity. Welcome back. Alright, so let's do a quick recap. Essentially, Cas9 is a special protein from bacteria that can take a piece of genetic material called RNA, read it, then look for any matches in a cell's genome, or the DNA. If it finds a part of the DNA that's an exact match for the RNA it's carrying, then it cuts the DNA around that sequence, then moves on to look for more matches. Because cutting out a piece of DNA creates a gap, we can introduce a prepared new gene into the gap to fool the cell into making that protein instead. So now that we have this super powerful, cheap, yet effective molecular tool, what can we use it for? Well, as we talked about, one obvious application is research. Instead of selectively breeding animals until they express a specific gene, painstakingly analyzing the genome each time, scientists can simply insert or delete a gene with CRISPR now. 
This will let scientists discover the function and purpose and interactions of all kinds of genes at a ludicrously faster rate than in the past. Analyzing and understanding the genome will mean that we can perform more edits as well. For example, if we find a plant that contains a gene that lets the plant create a protein that helps it fight off pests, we can copy that gene and insert it into a plant that would normally not have it. This lets us create super crop that are hardier, easier to grow, and have more nutritional benefits for us. We can modify the genome of mosquitoes so that they're not susceptible to carrying the malaria parasite, which should drastically reduce malaria rates and save millions of lives. And remember that we are animals with cells too. We can use this tool to change our genome, for better or for worse. The current focus of CRISPR research is how we might be able to use it to treat, or even cure, diseases that result from faulty genes, or genetic conditions. For example, take cystic fibrosis, which is a genetic condition that results from the lack of just three base pairs. Remember how we said that when DNA is read, it's read as triplets, which code for an amino acid each? Well, in cystic fibrosis, the lack of these three base pairs result in just one single amino acid to be missing from the protein made by the gene. Just one teeny tiny amino acid. But turns out even the tiniest change to your genes can cause a shocking number of problems in the body. In the case of cystic fibrosis, the protein that is affected, CFTR, is an important channel that lets chloride ions out of cells. This is very important in creating sweat, pancreatic digestive juices, and mucus in the lungs. The faulty CFTR protein causes certain bodily secretions like the ones in the lungs and pancreas to become very thick and viscous, gumming up all the tiny ducts. These blockages can damage the pancreas, block the intestine, and turn the lung fibrous and hard, causing people to die due to respiratory failure. So if the cause of all of these symptoms is one broken gene, then what if we fixed the broken gene? Up until recently, this seemed like a futuristic treatment because it was deemed too difficult to accurately and reliably modify the genes of every cell in the human body. We just didn't have the technology. But now, we have CRISPR. If we were to create a package full of Cas9 proteins, the guide RNA for the broken gene found in cystic fibrosis, and the replacement DNA that would represent the normal CFTR gene, and delivered that package to every cell in the patient's body, then the Cas9 proteins would do all the dirty work, scanning the cell's nucleus for the specific broken genes, snip it out, and let the cell replace it with the healthy gene that we inserted. And how might we deliver this neat package to the trillion cells in the body? Well, we can hijack yet another biological mechanism that already is an expert at infiltrating cells and inserting genetic material. Viruses. There are also non-viral, very technical ways that we can deliver DNA packages to cells, but I thought it was a cool thing to mention that sometimes we might want to purposefully infect someone with a virus to change the genetic material and cure their incurable disease. There are already multiple trials going on around the world where CRISPR is being used to edit the cells of cancer patients. It's still early days, but it shows that the future we thought that was far, far away is a lot closer than we previously thought, thanks to this biotechnological breakthrough. Scientists are hoping that CRISPR might be the key to potentially curing previously incurable diseases, such as cystic fibrosis, Huntington's disease, and Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Heck, they even think colorblindness might be fixable with a gene modification. And remember that not all of our genes are our own. When you are infected by certain viruses, such as HIV or herpes, the virus leaves copies of its DNA or RNA embedded in your genome 
so that your cells will keep producing more viruses in the future. CRISPR might let us delete these viral genes from our cells, which is a completely different approach to treating viral illnesses. It's quite fascinating that we might be using CRISPR, bacteria's weapons against viruses, to treat our own viruses. The applications don't just stop there. We might have CRISPR-based diagnostic tests in the future, where you can have a simple dipstick, similar to a pregnancy test or a COVID rat test, for all kinds of viral illnesses, because CRISPR lists us spot-specific genes. We might be able to fight antibiotic-resistant bacteria with CRISPR, by fooling the bacteria to chop up its own DNA with its own Cas proteins. This would be a novel form of antibiotics to treat super-resistant infections that we struggle to treat with current medicines. And lastly, of course, we have to address the biggest concern about the emerging CRISPR technology, the ability to create designer babies. Gene therapy, or the ability to change the genes of every cell in your body, is good and all, but all of the changes stop there, with you. What I mean by this is that even if you change all of the body cells, or somatic cells, the altered genetic information won't be passed on to the next generation. As long as you leave the germ cells alone, that is, the cells used in reproduction like sperm and eggs, the genetic changes will not be inherited to the person's offspring. You could argue that this is a good thing because it avoids the ethical issue of altering the future of that person's lineage, because it's like giving someone a pill for the illness or doing surgery. It only affects the individual. But what if it's for the purpose of fixing a genetic illness once and for all? Consider the number of people on Earth who have to think about whether they want children or not, in fear of passing down an inherited illness that they have. If we could change the DNA of a person's germ cells, or even apply CRISPR technology to an embryo before a baby is even born, then we have a chance to cure an illness before it can even start having effects on a person's life. That said, this opens up whole new cans of worms. Firstly, people might argue that we are tampering too much with our natural makeup if we were to directly affect our evolution through gene manipulation. But you could also say that we already do this to some degree with modern medicine, extending life expectancy and improving child mortality. So unless you're religious, it seems like less of an issue. Secondly, an unborn baby does not have the ability to consent to these genetic changes. What if they grow up and decide that they're very much against gene manipulation, only to find out that it was done to them before they were even born? In this scenario, you could probably apply current ethical principles of treating children with a guardian's permission, or the case of pregnancy terminations. Already, more than 90% of pregnancies diagnosed with trisomy 21, more commonly known as Down syndrome, are terminated. So you could make the argument that this type of practice is already happening widely. So you can make the argument that this type of practice is already happening widely, parents choosing whether to keep a pregnancy if they know that they will grow up with certain medical conditions. Now, of course, I'm grossly simplifying some huge ethical conundrums, so it's probably good for you to ponder these issues, research it, and discuss it with people to explore your own views on this. Now, let's explore some more ethical gray areas. Suppose that our society becomes comfortable with using CRISPR to cure genetic conditions in embryos, much like how amniocentesis is widespread now. What if people decided that we wanted to edit genes that aren't broken or harmful? For example, what if parents say they would prefer a child with a stronger constitution, or not have lactose intolerance, because it would improve their quality of life? What if through research we discover genes that improve the metabolism or intelligence of a person, and people want to ensure that their babies have these genes? It might even go further to cosmetic things, such as choosing the hair color or height of your child. 
Over a long course of time, if these kinds of designer babies become more commonplace, it might affect the direction of our evolution where we have a new species of superhumans that have been genetically optimized through careful genetic sculpting. But as we know from history, these types of treatments are often privileges available only to the upper class of society who can afford it. This means that we run the risk of creating a rift of rich, genetically enhanced people wanting to distance themselves from poorer, less fortunate, normal people. We will be considered lesser. And by God, we know that humanity has a tendency to look down on people different to them if given the chance, and that's even when there's no genetic difference. Because of all of these potential ethical issues that come with the technology to edit genes easier and cheaper, one of the co-inventors, Doudna herself, called for a moratorium in 2015, asking scientists around the world to pause CRISPR research until we have talked out the possible implications, issues, and ethics surrounding the technology. I think it's important to distinguish here that we have had paradigm shifts like this many times through history, and despite people's fears that the world could end, life went on and we adapted. Just look at the introduction of electricity, nuclear power, and hell, literacy. What is important when it comes to technological revolutions is not to focus on the fear and anxiety that it creates, banning or shunning these changes, but to have open in-depth discussions on how we can best use the technology to better people's lives. Because if you repress scientific development out of fear, you run the risk of preventing further breakthroughs that might save millions of lives down the line. But you also have people developing technology in an unsafe, unregulated manner. For example, take the recent events in the United States where the Supreme Court essentially removed women's rights to abortion, a horrific, regressive move that is the direct opposite of bettering people's lives. Instead of utilizing the medicine and technology that we have to improve women's reproductive health and rights as human beings, Fear, misinformation, and religious beliefs can turn a society away from progress. Which is why we need to have good understandings of science and technology, so that it can be used well and for people to make sound, rational decisions around them. And that's exactly why you should listen to Explain This, to understand the complex world around you. We're living in an era where genetic engineering is just starting to blossom, and it's very hard to predict how things will change in the future. We don't know what new technologies and paradigm shifts might arise now that we can study genetics much easier and cheaper. For example, in the future, scientists might discover the genetic causes of aging and reverse it with gene editing, meaning that we might become quasi-immortal. It might improve our ability to navigate space if we can edit our genes so that human body is better adapted for space travel. Or we might live in a Gattaca-like society where people are judged on how good their genes are and it actually affects your career prospects. Anyway, we could spend weeks discussing the ethics of genetic engineering, but we'll stop there for today. So what did we learn today? We learned how DNA and genetics work is an instruction manual for cells so they know what proteins to print out. We learned that we can change and manipulate an organism's genome to change how their body functions and looks. We learned about the CRISPR-Cas9 system, a novel way to edit genes that drastically improves cost, speed, and accuracy, making genetic engineering a more achievable, accessible tool. We learned about how it works through hijacking a protein called Cas9 that can seek and cut out a specific DNA sequence, so scientists can sneak in a different gene in that place. We learned about the applications of CRISPR technology, from researching genes, to improving agriculture, to fixing incurable diseases, to possibly taking humanity to a new stage of evolution. We learned that genetic engineering involves many ethical discussions, 
so that we don't go down slippery slopes from the misuse of this powerful technology. Alright, for today's 2 Minute Explain, let's talk about something completely unrelated to genetics. Have you ever been told that if you're too far from your car for your keys to lock or unlock them remotely, you should put your keys by your head and they should work? If you've never tried this, give it a go next time you walk into your car. It really works. Now, people often joke that it's because your brain waves help carry the signal, but that can't possibly be the answer, right? How does this simple trick actually work? Well, the first obvious answer is that you're raising the keys. The higher you hold your remote, the less barriers there may be between the keys and your car, so the signal can be transmitted more effectively. You'll find that if you just raise your arms instead of holding it by your head, it works just as well as holding keys to the temple of your head. But this can't be the only answer, because it seems to work even if there's absolutely no barriers between the keys and your car. The second answer is actually much more interesting. When you press the key to your body and click it, the electromagnetic waves that make up the signal can cross past your clothes and your skin into your body. Now, your body is mostly made of water, which can act as a capacitor. A capacitor is basically something that can store an electrical charge, like the kind that charges up in a camera flash. The electrical charge of the signal bounces rapidly between the key and the water in your body, which amplifies the signal. That's right, your body becomes a giant aerial that boosts the signal strength, which is why the range of the remote keys almost doubles through the use of this trick. Arthur C. Clarke said famously, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that's one of the many reasons I absolutely adore learning about science. So go on, impress some cool kids with your new car key trick. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Explain This. I hope you learned something interesting and maybe even useful today. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. Explain This was written and hosted by me, Jin Kim. If you'd like to suggest a topic or just send a lovely message, you can email me at explainthiscast at gmail.com or follow me on Facebook or Twitter 